Good morning, listeners. This is Green Left Weekly, and welcome to our weekly program. Uh, we have Jacob and Lalita Chalaya in the studio, taking you through till 8.30. Yeah. So, and yeah. what a week you've had, Jacob. Ah, yeah, we've... Um, um, ABCC oh. has gone through. Um, probably with them, that has, yep, that has gone through. Backpackers has gone through. Um, though one of the things that has to be um, mentioned is it's in the context of um, these so-called third parties, um, bas- uh, basically Darren Hinch, uh, Nick Xenophone, uh, Pauline Hanson of One Nation. I think there was another MP, but I think it was a One Nation MP um, that basically voted in favour of the APCC. Um, I they think, all did, didn't they? Yeah, they basically all did. Yeah. Um, and if it wasn't for the um, for these cross benches, um, um, the APC in fury wouldn't have passed because the Greens and Labor had opposed it. Yeah, that's right. Um, also, what ha- interesting enough, what also happened um, this in the past few days was a group of protesters. Um, actually, I think some of them actually are involved <laughs> in FreeCR. Actually, uh, I know two of them at least have a, f- a program on FreeCR. Um, at least 50 protesters, or how many was it again? Or a series of protesters um, stormed um, Parliament House and sort That's of right. su- um, superglued themselves to the Parliament House. Um, <laughs> called and then called on um, and then called on the government to close the bloody camps, like yes, you know, to the refugee try. camps. So many things are happening, and of course, the biggest news is the passing of Fidel Castro. Yeah, and uh, that was pretty. That happened last Saturday. Um, mm. Fidel Castro was a great Cuban revolutionary leader. Um, everybody knows about. Yeah, well, everyone knows <laughs> that. They like him or hate him. <laughs> yeah, and but um, later on um, today, we will actually be doing an interview um, with someone from the Cuban Friendship Society at later um, to talk more in detail about the legacy of Fidel Castro. Uh, and there'll also be a number of events um, related to Fidel Castro's um, death that we'll be announcing. Yeah. Okay, so I guess there's way too much to cover, but let's start with what's happening. Uh, what what Green Left Weekly has written up. Um, now, I wanted to start off with, um, let's see, Africa's last colony, Morocco. Uh, Morocco's monarchy uh, pursues neoliberal policies in occupied Western Sahara. So I'll just read out a little bit of this because it's just appalling what's happening there. Morocco's 41-year occupation of the Western Sahara, considered by many to be Africa's last colony, many considered to be yeah, uh, twice for some reason. Anyway, um, the Moroccan authorities barred the Sahrawi political leader uh, Swelma Biorouk. That's really hard name. I hope I pronounced it. I'm sure I'm, I, I pronounced it badly. They, they stopped him from attending the climate summit, even though she, she actually, she serves as the vice president of the Pan-African Parliament, and that was a huge international meeting as well. She was reportedly held by Moroccan police for 30, 75 hours without food or water. This is the, the, the wrath with which they attack uh, radicals in Morocco in favor of big business, um, and, and it's just appalling. Morocco also faced criticism after it briefly published a map on an official COP22 website that showed occupied Basahara to be part of Morocco. The image was later taken down from the website. The UN considers West Sahara to be a non-self-governing territory. In March, Morocco expelled the UN staffers from Western Sahara after UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon referred to Morocco's rule over the region as an occupation during a visit to the Algerian town of Tindouf. 
which has been the home for Western Saharan refugees for four decades. One half of the Sarawi population live, lives in the refugee camps, while the other half lives in territory under occupation. Moroccan authorities also continue to block many international journalists and human rights organizations from entering the occupied Western Sahara. So this climate summit is, is a complete schmozzle, to, to put it succinctly, actually. Uh, the uh, Mark Zen, which is the king and the ruling elite around the... Um, hang on. That is... Um, He's, he's like the king, actually. He's the king, yeah. Um, they, they try to whitewash, you know, their crimes, their repression and the authoritarianism, and also make people forget about the occupation that has been ongoing for more than four decades in Western Sahara. So it's a, a complete mess because um, the king is being supported and the Western nations' orders are supposed to be carried out by the Moroccan government. So it goes on and on. So that's one international news. The other one I have is about Western Papua. Now, there was a flag raising ceremony a couple of days ago. Um, it was Christmas. yesterday, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, it was Wednesday night. First, the 1st of December. That would have been yesterday, yeah. Yeah. So on the, the West Papua Independence, we, we expect many would have attended that. Um, so it is the... If you look at the website Crying Freedom, it's a new release of Cry Freedom, Heroic Tales of the Unstoppable Nation of West Papua. They're also running as much online advertising as they lead to crucial Melanesian spearhead group, and we've discussed this before. We had a group of people here, I think on a Saturday, that I, the program I used to do, um, where they discussed about being accepted as the MSG, and now they are looking at the Pan-African um, group that will accept them, which means they indirectly become part of the UN. So that is a, a big, big um, event for the West Papuans, and it was all over Facebook those for those who haven't seen it. So support West Papua and um, visit the website. It's called cryfreedom.net, which illustrates 50 years of heroic peaceful resistance in West, West Papua, which is struggling for its freedom and has been doing so for many decades. Okay, the next news is about the Rohingya refugees who are fleeing um, from Burma. And there has been very sad news because of the way um, Nobel Prize winner Aung San Suu Kyi has um, responded to this. She's, a national, she's from the National League of Democracy. And in November 9, 2015, uh, was ele- in national elections uh, in Myanmar. She was hailed by Western leaders as heralding a new era for democracy and so on and so on, respect for human rights and on and on. So once isolated by sanctions imposed on, uh, on the pretext of widespread human rights abuses and previous military regimes, Burma is now a profitable destination for Western investment. And by September, the U.S. had lifted its last remaining sanctions. However, a year after the elections, the security forces now answering to the NLD-led government are engaging in huge human rights abuses. And we know that the Rohingya community is being persecuted and they have fled. Um, you know, the, the Bangladeshis um, refuse to have them because they are seen as Burmese and the Burmese hate them because they, they are seen as... They, they are actually classified as a Bangla race, which is an Indian. They, they, they speak... Uh, Bengali, so it's it's a it's a racist 
um, attack on these poor people who've been living there for many, probably over a century. And on November 14th, the UN High Commission for Refugees, um, John McKissick, I thought, I thought foreign names were good, this is, this is even worse, <laughs> told the BBC that the NLD-led government had perpetrated atrocities against the Rohingya minority from the Arakan or Rakhine state with the ultimate goal of ethnic cleansing of the Muslim minority in Myanmar. And there's many uh, Rohingyas who are in the um, refugee camps in, in um, Malaysia. Hmm. And we'll talk more about refugees later on as we are interviewing um, someone from Iraq in about five minutes. Okay, one last one, but very important one, is Standing Rock, which is a massive um, campaign against the pipelines. So the U.S. Um, has invested $3.8 billion uh, in this pipeline, and if completed, it would carry up to 570,000 barrels of crude oil daily from North Dakota to refineries in Illinois. If built, it will cross the Missouri River, the main source of drinking water and irrigation for 8,200 residents of the Standing Rock Reservation. So this has become a huge issue. Now, um, is the continuation of this thing that I pointed out? Um, well, I can give a bit more give sort of details. Bit, yeah. um, what's actually interesting enough has been happening is it's starting to get more and more kind of broad support, um, especially from um, workers, um, unionists, and, um, and and in turn the um, broader community. And it's kind of developed into a sort of very sort of um, hub for kind of activity in terms of like, you know, bringing sort of different groups together and standing in solidarity with um, Native Americans. Yeah. Um, though, interesting enough, I read an article recently, um, and the media has been sort of playing this up, but apparently there's been a bit of, um, you know, people who sort of have been coming, um, coming to... Um, to the um to the site in order to you know enjoy the cultural sort of like you know what well the word is hippies are basically going in to right, but what before I continue on with that apparently that is actually being it's an exaggeration the media has actually been playing it up um, the establishment especially because um, it is actually a minority of people that are actually you know causing trouble in the camp. Um, and it's uh, the reason why they've been emphasizing this story um, is uh, as being reported in some um, media outlets is um, that the it's an attempt to divide you know basically people yeah, by you know emphasizing the worst aspects and, and you've kind of <laughs> you can kind of see this in the history of a lot of these occupations whenever there's an occupation or some big action guy the um, the established media always sort of attempts to um, to sort of ascarate sort of the the worst um, parts of the people involved in those um, actions. Um, and even more, um, I'll just quickly play a quick announcement and um, we'll get ready to do uh, an interview with Lucy um, from Rack. You're listening to Friday Breakfast and Green Left Radio. Uh, this is 855 on your AM dial. Now we have Lucy Honan on the line and she's from the Refugee Action Collective. Good morning, Lucy. Morning, Lucy. Oh, sorry, I forgot to... Hello. Yeah, that was it. That should, uh, we should hear you now. <laughs> That's okay. Sometimes we forget these buttons. Um, and welcome to 3CR. And we're going to talk about what the Refugee Action Collective is doing um, in the next little while. And perhaps we can chat about um, a couple of other things we 
Discuss, which is a teachers' campaign um, and the U.S. deal with, about refugees as well. So maybe we should start with the, the U.S. deal, uh, Lucy. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah, sure. Yep. Okay, well, what's, what's, um, what's the um, details of that, that deal with the U.S. that Refugee Action Collective has issues with? And we discussed that first. Well, the, the details of the deal are what we have issues with because there are no details of the deal. Um, exactly. <laughs> since it's been since, since it's been announced, well, it was announced a couple of Sundays ago um, as this long-awaited resolution to the in, you know to the injustice of offshore detention, um, and of course it was an admission the fact that the, the Australian government has had to find another first world country that will look like it's rescuing Australia from. Um, from having these offshore camps that, that refugees can go to, um, that's an admission that the camps have failed, absolutely. But um, since then, it's become clearer and clearer that um, the, the deal is far from adequate and will definitely mean that both Manus and Nauru um, will still have refugees on them. I think Sky News revealed... Um, when, when it, for some reason it got to go to Nauru because most journalists can't get there, but Sky News got to Nauru and revealed that the US deal would only, um, take 300 refugees. And that's, you know, as long as when Trump is inaugurated, the deal isn't scuttled entirely. So 300 refugees from Nauru is only a third of the refugees on Nauru. Um, so that leaves thousands of people still there. It doesn't touch the refugees on Manus Island um, and it doesn't deal with the fact that Peter Dutton has said those refugees who have come to Australia for medical reasons, for example, the women who have been raped, um, the children who are here um, for medical reasons, the people who have been taken here because they are so mentally traumatised by their years in detention on Nauru, those people will have to go back to Nauru in order to apply to be accepted into the US. And if they are not one of the lucky 300, they will stay um, on Nauru indefinitely. So we have huge problems with the US deal. And also, isn't it a condition that um, there have to be officially UN-approved um, refugees before they are sent to the US if that actually goes through? That's, that's right, which just adds to the adds to the timeline factor. I mean, these are people who've been waiting three or four years already. Oh, yeah. um, many yeah. of them, many of them actually already have been um, deemed refugees, so they've been accepted as refugees, and yet they have to go through more processing still. I know the the the, the state of humanity stinks at this stage, and also the other thing that worries me about this um, deal is that the US is already struggling with health issues, education issues, because there is, there is very little. I mean, Obamacare covers the very basic, which is even more basic than our Medicare system here. And they do not have an education system that allows people who are refugees um, being allowed to enter, enter the education system. I mean, they are mm. people of different ages, um, and I'm just wondering how they're going to integrate if this thing goes through as well. There's no, as you said, there's no details isn't that mm. the, the, the truth of the matter? Mm, yeah, I mean, I think the US is very similar to Australia in a lot of ways in that, of course, the resources, the potential wealth is there that they could absolutely very easily offer these refugees um, a fantastic standard of living just as Australia could because, you know, we all know that 
there are billions and billions of dollars worth of wealth in America. Mm. Um, It's just a question of whether or not they would welcome um, these refugees. And I'm sure there are lots of people, you know, the people who are out on the streets protesting Trump at the moment who would welcome them with open arms, just as we would here in Australia. And compared to... um, You know, the economy of Nauru, for example, which has been absolutely shattered by countries like Australia Mm. um, over over the years. It's got the resources to do that. The question is, why is Australia depending on the US to process these refugees? What is wrong with Australia? It's a first world country. Um, You know, these refugees came from our region to Australia that's our obligation, and it's also well within our means to be able to welcome these refugees. All that money that has been spent, the billions spent locking them up in detention, should have been spent welcoming them. As you speak, I'm thinking of this image that I saw on Facebook where they had Peter Dutton wearing a Nazi armband. You know, it's just a horrible image. But anyway, Jacob wants to ask yeah, something. Yeah, I have um, taken it more to... Um, taking discussion a bit away from the US refugee deal and sort of like, you know, the here and now, what is sort of, what are kind of the activities and actions that Iraq is currently involved in planning for the rest of the year? Um, because it is going into Christmas and maybe for <laughs> next year. Yeah, well, if you were, like me, very inspired by the people who um, who got into Canberra and, and protested yes. Parliament recently, fun. I think that was, yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> um, there's, if, you, if you're not up to abseiling or standing in red dye water, <laughs> nonetheless, there is stuff that you can do. Um, we've got a Rock for Refugees on Human Rights Day coming up. So Saturday, December 10th, next Saturday, at the Reverence Hotel in Footscray, we're holding a fundraiser. Um, with a whole lot of music, comedy, poetry. We've got the MC Corinne Grant um, and performers, the Fabric DJs, the same boat, Riding Mind, Littlefoot and many more. Um, we're raising money um, on, the, on December 10th for a few things. One is to try and get phone cards to the people um, on Nauru and Manus who we, they, you know, they don't have, they're not funded um, enough money there. Um, to contact their fa- to keep in regular contact with their um, to, with their families, or for that matter, to keep in regular contact with refugee advocates, so that we can get the truth about what's going on um, in the offshore camp. So we need we need money for um, phone cards, but we also this is a bit of a rarity for Refugee Action Collective. We don't usually raise money um, for individual cases, but we thought this one just goes to the heart of why what Australia is doing to refugees is so foul. Um, I just want to tell you a little bit about um, Ayad. He's um, a man who came, he's a Syrian, who came to Australia seeking asylum, um, but he was sent to Manus Island. In August of last year, he was under so much pressure from um, being in the detention camp um, that he agreed to go back to Syria But when he got back to Syria, he spent 20 days in a Syrian jail where he was tortured. He finally got back to his family while he was out on the street with his father. He was injured by gunfire and the gunfire killed his father. He then tried to escape Syria, but it was too dangerous. It was, as you you know, um, borders all around the world are being erected against Syrian refugees. Um, And he couldn't make it out, so he returned to Al-Hara. 
Um, his brother was kidnapped earlier this year and murdered. His wife um, gave birth to a little baby um, who died this year. It's cold in Syria and he has no money um, to feed his wife and family. Um, so we are raising money um, for IAD as well at this at this um, fundraiser on the 10th because we also want to raise not just money but awareness that the more that we put these barriers up against refugees, the more we are sending people back to these intense war zones um, and keeping them in situations that are torturing and killing them. Can you give the... Um the venue and the times and the band's playing yeah, another round sure, of announcement, please. Sure. It's Saturday the 10th of December at the Reverence Hotel, which is 28 Napier Street in Footscray. Mm-hmm. And it's on from 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. this Saturday. And um, it's $10 um, for concession, $15 for full price. And um, if you're a refugee or an asylum seeker, it's, of course, free. Um, but there'll be lots of opportunities to donate more. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll announce it again um, towards the end of the program. But I wanted to ask you about the teachers' campaign, which you um, were discussing off air with me. Um, Lucy, do you want to give us some uh, news about that, please? Yeah, sure. So um, Teachers for Refugees, which I'm also part of, I'm a teacher, um, we're organising a T-shirt action um, where on the 12th of December through to the 16th, we're going to be wearing T-shirts to school that say Teachers for Refugees on the front and close the camps, bring them here on the back. Um, and the idea of the action is to just bring these politics into work, into our schools, um, and to show that as teachers, you know, we don't accept the racism, the kind of abuse that happens um, that we hear from from people like Peter Dutton and Malcolm Turnbull, um, and we don't accept it from them either. So it's a kind of a united action um, of teachers. So we've got teachers at the moment. Um, I know there are groups from 23 different schools around Melbourne, more in Sydney, um, and more and more keep coming on and getting in contact with me to get um, get bunches of T-shirts for their schools. Um, so that will be happening, and we're also having um, a like a media launch and vigil on the 12th of December, so the Monday evening at 6pm at City Square on Swanston Street. We've got a whole bunch of speakers, including a lot of teachers who were refugees themselves. Um, We've got people who teach refugees at the moment um, who will be talking about the the plight of their students and the fact that they can't get permanent visas and full access to education. Um, and also we'll be speaking to, uh, sorry, Jane Willey will be speaking, who um, taught on Nauru recently, the um, the students there, and she'll be explaining how why she turned, uh, why she was the author of a lot of um, the um, leaked Nauru files, and, and she'll be speaking about what was what was held in them and why it was only the tip of the iceberg. So that's on the 12th of December, 12th of the 12th, City Square yes. at 1 p.m.? Yes. 6 p.m. 6 p.m. Okay. That's right. And you've got speakers and um, the rest of it. Okay, that sounds fantastic. (laughs) Now, maybe you want to tell people um, who are teachers and maybe those who are not teachers as well, how they can obtain a T-shirt, please, Lucy. 
Yeah, sure. Well, just get in contact with me. Um, we've, we've already distributed about 500 of them, um, but we've got plenty more to get out there. So please give me a call on 0404-728-104 or look up Teachers for Refugees on Facebook and you'll be able to find more details about the action there. This action has been supported by the Australian Education Union, which is fantastic. So um, no trouble there if you're a public school teacher and you're worried about your principal. We've got full support from our union um, to wear these T-shirts to school to start the conversations. Wonderful. That sounds excellent. Um, thank you so much for um, coming, waking up so early in the morning to talk to us. And <laughs> no, that's great. Pleasure. That's Good to, to have you guys um, give us an update about refugees, and we'll keep in touch, I'm sure. Um, Thanks, Lolita. Have a good day, Lucy. You too. Bye. Okay, bye. Hi. Um, good morning, listeners. You're back on Green Left um, Weekly Radio um, with Jacob and Lalita. Um, I'll just go, um, we just um, interviewed Lucy um, from Refugee Action Lucy Collective. Yep. Um, but I guess um, we'll talk, what we're talking, we're talking about Standing Rock before, and I just wanted to continue um, just something that's um, uh, interesting development. Um, but coming this December, and as reported in the um, latest issue of Green Left Weekly, um, North Dakota Access Pipeline protesters will likely be receiving support from hundreds of US veterans who have com- who have committed to their cause. Um, Organiser Wes Clark Jr., a former U.S. Army officer, best known as the co-host of the Young Turks show called The Standing Rock Resistance to um, DA Dakota Pipeline, the most important event up to this time in human history. Um, A Facebook page titled Veterans Stand for Standing Rock announced the hundreds of veterans will join the Standing Rock protesters from December 4th to December 7th. It also gives a link to a GoFundMe page raising funds for their trip, which has so far received more than um, $68,000 of their 200000 goal. Um, so that should be an interesting um, demonstration of solidarity. Um, now, I think from going back to sort of local Australian politics, um, we just mentioned in passing that the ABCC had been passed in the Senate. Um, but I guess one thing we didn't really go into detail on is, you know, what what makes the ABCC, you know, so terrible, um, especially for workers and uh, in construction workers in particular, um, which is what the bill um, is aimed at. Um, basically, what the ABCC do in the general sense, I'm not a legal expert, so I can't go into all the fine kind of details of the legal process. But what I can um, basically say is what the ABCC does is actually a, it's an attack on construction workers' ability to organise in their workplaces. Um, it can What it can amount to is it can basically amount to um, having you know, um, construction um, wor- um, worker union organisers being unable to visit their work sites. Um, could, they could be prevented to from under the ABCC. Um, they could be treated by, like, common criminals. Um, it's uh, And the implications of this is, you know, um, in workplaces that are, don't have a strong union, um, that aren't unionised and don't have a strong union presence, it could um, lead to work um, safety issues. For example, um, you know, construction companies, um, there's this constant conflict between the construction worker um, from workers trying to collectively organise and um, ensure safety in the workplace and the drive from companies, you know, to... Um, the you know companies could make you know costs cutting you know to which could impact on safety and there's these sort of there's this sort of conflict and basically the ABC C will put more 
give more power to the bosses as opposed to the workers in organising. And that is what makes it such a dangerous kind of bill and that it, should it be gives, opposed. It gives gives the companies enormous power. Already they have contracting arrangements and so on. And this is going to worsen and, and the union won't be able to negotiate um, decent workplace agreements and especially on health and safety issues with the, with the, um, the employers. But for me, the, the bigger, broader picture is uh, really terrifying because the CFMU is one of the last unions that, is, that has remained very strong, a blue-collar union that has stood up for union rights for all workers um, in, in the way they have fought against any repression or, or attacks on the workers. So what happened is the, the, the group of scraggly parliamentarians who have recently been elected, including Darren Hinge in First Nation, have betrayed the workers lock, stock and barrel. Um, this means that the trade union movement is its, its being driven to, do it, to its weakest point in history. I think that the, the, the attack on the trade unions began in the 1980s when you had the accord, and pe- many people are very um, well aware of um, the agreement between the government and the unions um, and employers where they restricted um, union activity greatly to an extent where there was almost a, a f- between 17 and 25 percent drop in wages, and 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 the exact reverse in profits. So the profits grew up, grew as much as the drop in wages. So now we have a more draconian situation where trade unions are being driven to almost into prison, really, which means they can't lift their head because they can either get fined massive amount of money or they go to jail, whether it's individual or unions um, as a whole. Um, it's, it's a complete attack on human rights and free speech and especially a right to organize. That is a fundamental human right. And you know that the United Nations has a, a clause and it's one of its um, um, uh, human rights um, charter thing, that where, where trade unions are weak, we'll find that human rights are also very weak. And we see it here. As the trade unions reduce in power, you find the human rights issues are actually biting the dust, whether it's the refugee collective or whether it's allocation of funding for the, for the low socioeconomic order of, of society, attack on retired people, attack on young people, or attack on women. It goes on and on and on. So that is a bigger picture that worries me more than the details, although the details worry me too in terms of how they are attacking the workers and CFMU you know, as if they're going, they call them thugs. That's what they do in Parliament. And, hmm. and they're going after them in, in that sort of pic, that's a picture they paint, and that's yeah. what they're doing. And, that, and that's kind of picture that's kind of like you know backed completely by the Murdoch press, like Absolutely. the Herald Sun. Absolutely, Fairfax, um, the whole bloody lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gay. Now, changing against the subject, um, <laughs> make your blood boil. <laughs> there's, uh, I'll go talk about. Um, there's a news article in the latest Green Left Weekly from um, Peter Boyle on stopping um, the tax on retired workers. Um, Peter Boyle here argues that, you know, it is an old trick in the neoliberal capitalist handbook for selling a story to try to gain public support for another cutback by claiming to address um, intergenerational equality. Um, and, of course, you know, it comes in sort of this context of, you know, young people were told, you know, they should not think that they're entitled to rights such as free education, permanent jobs, unemployment benefits and even pensions when they are too ill um, or old to work, you know, this attack is then shifting, you know, to older generations. And 
in a report um, titled The Age of Entitlement, um, Age-Based Tax Breaks, Think Tank, the Grattan Institute, has called for free tax concessions for older people to be removed. Um, these can ta- Tax concessions are the seniors and pensioners tax offset, a higher Medicare levy, income threshold and higher private um, health insurance rebates. Um, These concessions are estimated to be worth um, a billion a year. Um, So basically the government is attempting to cut these um, to to basically make some savings, you know, to balance the budget. Um, And of course, you know, even if these $1 billion is um, saving if implemented, it would likely go towards um, the Liberal National Coalition's government plan to give nearly $50 billion in tax cuts to corporations. And, of course, if implemented, these cuts would follow um, a $2.4 billion cut in spending on the age pension made last year by the Malcolm Turnbull government through tightening the assets test. Um, though this that kind of um, policy had some misguided support from the Greens, Peter Boyle here, here argues. Um, the Greens swallowed the argument that these age pensions need to be more tightly restricted to eliminate so-called middle-class welfare, but hardest hit by these cuts are retiring workers who have been urged to save through superannuation to try mostly unsuccessfully to fund their own retirement or to keep working at least part-time if they reach retirement age. Um, the other implications include, you know, that it puts pressure on pensioners and retirees to sell their homes and move into cheaper accommodation. Um, and of course, you know, the retirement age is currently 65, could soon be steadily raised to 67. Um, the Liberals want to raise to 2070. Um, what, and of course, Peter Boyle argues, you know, there's an alternative to this, you know, why not we cut more than 10 billion annual subsidies to large fossil fuel corporations instead, instead of hitting pensioners and prize yet again. You know, why target these minor, minor concessions for pensioners? Um, and of course, um, if um, various, you know, subsidies and tax concessions now enjoyed by the corporate rich were eliminated, that would be more than enough um, money freed up to fund a universal age pension that guaranteed all retired workers a much higher standard of living. No retired worker will be forced to sell off and leave their homes and the communities in which they're comfortable and um, play an important part. That's right. People need to understand it's, it's, it's no more uh, an issue of if you, if you put your head down, bum up, work yourself, you know, you have a comfortable retirement. It doesn't work anymore. It's like every man to himself, every woman to herself, to try and do something about sustaining life, basically, after work. I mean, yeah. how do you do that? It's, it's just really bringing it down to the very tin tacks of basics of survival in the end. It's almost a third world country situation. That's what happens. Now, and, uh, following on from that, there's another, the other side of the spectrum. Um, the young people, you know, the young, uh, the worker center I- at Victoria Trades Hall have released a new petition on Facebook um, and it's called Stop the Scan. Scam. And this is in relation to the chain restaurant Grill. A grilled employee was, uh, has come forward um, accusing the chain of using traineeships as an excuse to pay lower wages. Employees are being signed up to hospitality certificates, but the business refuses to schedule regular training sessions. And um, there lies a scam, but not scheduling training sessions. Employees cannot complete traineeships, and the employer continues to pay low trainee, traineeship wages. This is not the first time Grilled has been under scrutiny for pay rates. It, July last year, it came to the light that Grilled was employing workers on work choices era contracts uh, and that paid 
contracts are paid below award wages with no penalty rate. So you, you have this, this two-pronged attack. You attack the, the older people and you also attack the younger people. So the yeah. older people can't even help the younger people because they don't have a stash or a, a nest of money somewhere sitting so they can actually support the younger generation. And the younger generation should be paid properly. And, you know, it's in terms of work, they do as much work as anybody else. This traineeship um, scam is just another... You know, another scam that, that goes on with all this um, chain restaurant, whether it's with um, McDonald's or whether it is 7-Eleven or whatever it is, they employ young children, young children, well, they are children in a sense, 16, 17-year-olds work there, um, and rip them off completely. It's called child labor. It's more like child slave labor at mm. this stage. It's just absolutely appalling. It infuri- it's infuriating to think that in Australia we don't have enough you know, anger and protest about these things to get out of the streets mm. you know, and do something about it. That's very frustrating. I mean, I know protests come and go, but in the end, someone's got to hold this government to, to account. Like, you find that the, the, at the latest um, stats I saw just last night, uh, Australia is spending around 50% or more on military spending. Mm. You know, what are they defending against? You know, this yellow peril nonsense has been going on for such a long time. And they're spending more and more money on um, destructive, destroyable um, ammunitions and so on so that they can renew it. So the rich get richer and their mates get the contracts. You know, whether it's the French contract um, for the submarines in South Australia or whatever, the fact remains they're all destructive. There's nothing constructive that helps society. Anyway, Mm. it just annoys me that, that, you know, we, we don't have enough muscle in the community to get out and protest all these things yep. consistently to change, stop this government to, to ramp everything up against the, the, the poor working people on the ground yep. anyway, there's another piece of material uh, or news about the nuclear waste dumps, do you want to do that? Or don't you have oh, why don't we do a quick announcement and you then we that. can move on yeah, it's coming up to 7.40 what is it, there are two different times yet 7.42, yep. what's the temperature um Jacob, around the top, you can see the temperature. 18 degrees. 18 degrees. And I think it's dry today. 18, and the highest is 21, I think, today. Yeah. And it's coming up to well, 7. we're in summer right now, so. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, summer. I haven't seen spring yet. Never mind summer. Yep. Okay. I, I have a pretty fitting announcement to play before we go on to this story about nuclear waste dump. Okay, you're back um, listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, okay, so Lali, Lalita has a news article to talk about um, the nuclear waste dump in South Australia. Yep. The South Australian Premier, what's his name, Bannon? No, urges referendum on unpopular nuclear waste. Isn't that interesting? How do you hold a referendum on on nuclear waste. No, who wants nuclear waste? It's just a stupid thing to do. But anyway, usually when people mention dying in a ditch, they are discussing something they would much rather avoid. But the South Australian state labor um, government, that's right, Premier Jay Weatherall, uh, dying in a ditch seems a positive ambition. For Weatherall, the climate, the, the, sorry, and his cabinet, the ditch is the government's plan to host up to a third of world's highest high-level nuclear waste in a giant dump in the state's remote north. The dump scheme was rejected decisively on the 6th of November by the government-organized citizens' jury. Two-thirds of the jury members selected as a representative cross-section of South Australians recommended the dump not go ahead under any circumstances. Let me repeat, under any circumstances, and there were jury and they were representatives of a cross-section of South Australians. 
The indigenous traditional owners have always strongly opposed the dump scheme. And this comes from the historical days of when the British tested nuclear uh, bombs in, um, in South Australia. Since the citizens' jury delivered this verdict, the plan has also been rejected by an apparent majority of state parliamentarians and clearly by mass public opinion. So here we have a situation, and there's much more to read on that article. If you are interested, you could get Green Love Weekly online or subscribe to it because we actually have a subscription drive at the moment. Um, to talk about more details about what this, this, this so-called referendum is all about. It's like saying, well, you can have poison in your backyard because it's going to kill you slowly mm-hmm. um, and some quickly, and it's going to poison your land, and you will not be able to live on that land for another 500,000 years. Um, would, you, would you like me to put the poison in your mm-hmm. backyard? Well, That's what this is all well, about. Well, I have one um, kind of interesting opinion on it. There's some, something that brought up in my mind about it. Mm-hmm. Um, from basically, I've been following the developments of this campaign quite closely, and there's been like mass protests, you mm. know, really huge protests against um, this waste dump in South Australia. And so um, it's kind of interesting, you know, you were talking about protests before and, you know, how, you know, we need to get people up home. Right yes. now, there is a very strong campaign. There are people protesting, and you know what, the, the effects of it are pretty are pretty interesting when you consider the context of the the, the fact that they're even considering a referendum. It's already demonstrated that there's such unpopular support for this nuclear waste dump. And, um, you know, probably all that needs to be done is basically they need, the government just needs to cave into what the people are demanding and say, no, we're not going to, we're not going to put, we're not going to dump waste. We're not going to, we're, we're going to, we're going to, um, refrain from doing whatever they were planning to do because clearly the people are opposed. But then they talk about this referendum, which actually in a sense can be seen is it's like a similar to the plebiscite in marriage quotes, yes. almost like a delaying tactic yes. um, from delaying action. And of course, but I guess the big difference between a referendum and a plebiscite is um, a referendum is binding. But I have no idea if it's so deeply unpopular. I don't know why they would be even considering a referendum because they know it feels like they are going to lose. Like maybe, maybe not. It depends on how they 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 twist and turn and, and manipulate it yeah. and how they word the questions because. Yeah. The question is always tricky. But for me, the government is supposed to represent the people. The people have spoken. Yep. Not once, twice. The cabinet has voted against it. The jury they, they set up have voted against it. Yep. So the only thing that's driving whether all is money. Yep. How much money he's going, he's, is he's going to gain? He says for the state, but who knows what he, he's getting the money for. Um, for using it, South Australia as a, as a nuclear waste dump, maybe we should put it in his backyard. Then he'll know what it, it all means. Hmm. You know, it's it's just ridiculous. It's it's incomprehensible. It's like the TPP. Australia had nothing to gain by it. Even the employ, even the large companies here didn't have much to gain by it. It's it's to the benefit of huge corporations who can give masses of amount of money to people who agree to do the things they want to do. Yeah. That's what this is all about, I think. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, um, moving on, um, there's another story. Um, just, I'll get, this is a story from uh, an article from like two weeks ago, but since today there's actually been a very twisty development. So I'll go on for the background um, story. But basically this is, um, relates to Mardi Gras, um, which is um, the largest lesbian you know, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex pride march in the world. Um, it started in, you know, to give a bit of history, it started in June um, 1978 when New South Wales police viciously assaulted queer people dancing through o- Oxford Street. 
Um, police arrested 53 people and continue to beat many inside police cells. Um, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald published the names of those arrested, leading many to be outed, sacked, divorced and disowned by family members. The environment for queers was harsh in the late 1970s. Campaigners only managed to repel laws against homosexuality in New South Wales in 1984. Um, and, of course, the repression spurred the annual Mardi Gras Pride protest parade through um, Sydney's gay district with themes such as On Our Way to Freedom, Fighting for Our Lives. Um, you know, these parades have involved up to 10,000 people or sometimes up to 600,000 people watching. Um, currently, it is the second largest event in New South Wales in economic terms and earns a whooping $30 million for the state. Um, but, of course, one of these things is the protest sort of component of Mardi Gras has been whittled away, um, you know, because, you know, there's a pressure to source, you know, money from businesses and governments has muted the political message of quality, resistance and liberation. Um, company floats as Ike, ANZ and Google are now mainstays of the parade. You can kind of see that reflected in, say, the Pride March um, that happened this year in St Kilda, mm. where it was much more... You know, you had like, you know, unionists and community groups, but you also had corporations and banks. Um, That's interesting, isn't it? um, So, yeah, and of course, (laughs) the new, and another more questionable thing about Mardi Gras these days that Rachel Evans here writes in Greenleaf Weekly is, you know, New South Wales police have marched in the parade for many years. Um, This is despite the fact that, you know, despite two police officers beat two gay men in 2013, um, of course, what happened in response is the police investigated themselves. No one was charged. <laughs> of course. Uh, and it was not until surprise, surprise. what happened last year was the police had ro- uh, apologised to the 78ers as the original Mardi Gras participants are known, but no compensation to victims was granted with the apology. Um, now, this is more the, case, the political um, context of where we're getting into the story. Um, Labor and Coalition also marched in the, in the parade despite having combined to pass the same um, marriage... um, same-sex marriage ban in 2014, despite both parties manoeuvring to prevent a marriage equality bill from being passed. Last year, Mardi Gras was invited by the Mardi Gras board to participate in the VIP area. He agreed and amid a storm of criticism, many rightly asked, why is he marching while denying rainbow couples the right to marry? Um, And, of course... Um, last year, Mardi Gras parade organisers also threatened to throw out the 200 strong free queer refugees community action against um, homophobia. Float for shaming, let them land, free the refugees. That opposition leader Bill Shorten, who was also marching in the parade. Um, there was also, you know, a, a threat of expulsion from community action against homophobia. For context, community action against homophobia is an activist group for LGBT rights. Um, and a court now. What's um, now? What is interest? Um, what's happening is there's been um, what happened sort of in the past several weeks is there was a elec- um, the board of Mardi Gras was due for elections, and the community organised with progressives joining the board um, to push um, for to defend a particular candidate. I think his name was Brenchy, and to push um, for Turnbull to not be invited to Mardi Gras. A motion put forward by um, Community Action Against Homophobia at the, age, at the AGM of the Sydney Gay and um, Lesbian Mardi Gras meeting um, um, was overwhelmingly passed. Basically, the and, good. Um, but here's the bad news that's just happened recently. Oh, God. <laughs> um, you know, and so basically that had, that motion had been passed, but basically apparently the bureaucracy of the Mardi Gras oh. have basically overturned that and apparently oh, now Markham Turbo at this point will be invited 
at so Mardi Gras. So much for democracy, even among the yeah. LGBTIQ um, or QI community. It's sad, isn't it? Yeah. And so that's um, this was a positive news story. They had to go for two week, three weeks ago, but now. What's happened as of yesterday is that's all being overturned oh. and Malcolm Turnbull will be invited to speak, uh, or invited to um, join in the parade. So what, is, what, what can he say? He and his stupid plebiscite. But, but I guess um, one thing to consider, there hasn't been a response yet. There could be, uh, could be a, um, a more on, there could be continued resistance and another They should overthrow the board, sack the board and, and appoint a new one. That's what yeah. they should do. Yep. But anyway, um, I want to go on to another story. Did you want to say something before I go on to no, the Kimberley good. story? Oh, good. It's um, a conservation group says don't frack the Kimberley National Parks, and it's of course not um, covered by the uh, mainstream media very much. There may have been odds bits here and there, but nothing in detail. But there's a, a lengthy article in Green Left Weekly. Um, it talks about the, Kimber- the uh, conservation group in the Kimberleys is calling for six oil and gas exploration licenses released this month by the Western Australian Department of Mines and Petroleum, DMP, to be withdrawn. The leases cover sensitive areas of the region, including two national parks, Winjana George Gorge um, and Tunnel Creek, and the two conservation parks, Devonian Reef and Brooking Gorge. Another lease covers the Margaret River that flows into the Fitzroy, and that's a famous river, that one. And Fitzroy is, is a big um, Aboriginal community area as well. Environs Kimberley Director Martin Pritchard said, These parks, world famous for their incredible beauty and environmental, historical and cultural importance. We can't believe the DMP have put leases for fracking anywhere near places like this. There is no way on earth that anyone with any kind of understanding of the Kimberley would put a fracking lease on Winjana Gorge and Tunnel Creek National Park. This is the equivalent of them what uh, what they're doing in um, with the Great Barrier Reef. That is destroy the environment to an extent where it's not going to be recoverable. So that you know this is. This is Similar stuff that's happening in the U.S. with the, with the Dakota, Dakota pipelines. Destroy the environment for profits. It's, it's as basic as that, it's as simple as that. And yet you find that the governments who are elected to represent the people, even in the Northern Territory, now you've got a, a vast a majority of the, well, ALP won a major victory there. They were voted with the confidence that they would listen to the people. And the way it's going at the moment, they're not listening to the people. And again, we have democracy not working for the, the, the Northern Territory people. Mm. And Margaret River is famous. It's just like the Barrier Reef. It's almost like the seventh one of the world. It's a beautiful place. Mm. And, and tourists go there by the thousands every year. And, and they're sort of like cutting the nose off despite themselves. It's just hopeless. You, know, in, in, it, you, feel, you feel hopeless when these things go on and on and on and on. And we, we really have to galvanize opposition to the actions of these governments yeah. and we should support the Northern Territory um, uh, Conservation Group and they, I think they've got a Facebook thing going as well. Yeah. Actually, what's funny about that, um, that the nature of democracy is um, in response to those <laughs> protests um, that happened at Parliament House that's been mentioned um, several times in the show so far. And they've done it twice, uh, once yeah, inside, once yeah, outside. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Bill Shorten mentioned, oh, this, this is not democracy. Oh, really? And um, in, <laughs> This is not freedom of speech. And, um, but it's sort of like, you know... Um, 
you know, have to understand why protests happen. If protests wouldn't happen if people didn't feel that if their people yeah. aren't feeling like their their voices are being listened to, then they will then they will rightfully organ collectively organise themselves and protest, and that's that's the way it goes. <laughs> but you know, the other aspect of what you're saying is that you know, if you if the the parliamentarians, the current government doesn't listen to the people. What will happen is what happened in the U.S. People will find others who will listen to them, even if the wrong things they're listening to, like that, the, the First Nation people. They will go further to, to, to find other representatives who will actually listen to their gripes and their complaints. A lot of them are legitimate, and they will vote for them. And you'll find this, these traditional parties are going to be squeezed, or they're already being squeezed, it's going to get worse. And if, if the, the shortens and the turnbulls of this, this, this world don't listen to the people as the way they're doing, they're going to even lose more. Um, I'm just wondering, can, I, can we do a couple of announcements before we go to an ID break? Yep. I just want to announce, did you, did you want to say something about this? Because I'm going to talk about yep, Fidel Castro. Okay, there's, um, for all those fans of Cuba and Fidel Castro, the man, um, there is a tribute to this wonderful legend um, on the... 4th of December, which is Sunday, this Sunday, at 12.30 at the Victorian State Library. Uh, and, you know, State Library is well known. It's the corner of Latrobe and Swanston. It says here, we stand in solidarity with the Cuban people for their loss. So, turn up to this. It's going to be a, a fun time. There will be music. There will be people speaking. And it will be a wonderful afternoon to be there, I'd say. Yeah. And uh, there's one other thing that I think is really important that we look at in supporting um, the West Papuan people. It's the Sampari Art Exhibition and Public Programs Celebrating West Papuan Culture. It's the ACU Art Gallery. It's 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, opening Friday the 2nd through to the 11th of December. Uh, It's You can look up Sampari Exhibition, one word, S-A-M-P-A-R-I Exhibition, on Facebook if you want more details on this. So it finishes on the 11th of December. So if you um, are looking for a pleasant, beautiful um, evening, that's or afternoon, whenever you want to go, that'll be the place to go to. One before we go on to IDs is a global street party. I think we've got an ID on that one. So 10th of December is a rally at the State Library at 12th, followed by family fun, culture exhibitions, um, the racial justice forums, rides, music, fun, and sounds. It's from 1 p.m. at Trades Hall, the corner of Ligon and Swanston. So there are just a few announcements before we go on to. There's another couple I want to talk about is the. Yeah. <coughs> we'll just quickly play announce. We'll quickly play announcement and then yeah, you go we'll into. Yeah, we'll come the back to this one. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock, and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 
3CR Community Radio. You got it right. You've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am. We're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976, and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape, and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch, and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers, and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. Okay, so it's 8 o'clock and we're going into um, the activist calendar, which we're already going through before. Yeah, like so many have, announcements. Because there's so many announcements. You have to start it early. Um, so I'll go with Lali. Um, one last, one... Um, I just want to make a quick note. We may be able to interview somebody on this particular issue, is actually. It's been put out by the um, Independent and Peaceful Australia Network, in short called IPAN. They're talking about um, Trump's election providing opportunity to, opportunity to reassess the fundamentals of Australian defence policies. Um, Nick Dean, who's, who, who, who's a spokesperson for IPAN, says Trump's election has removed a major plank underlying the defense strategy for successive Australian governments, which have consistently relied on U.S. and followed the U.S., really. Um, what he's saying is, is it's, it's an opportunity to um, have an independent approach to defense and has now become imperative once that shakes off the idea of the need for any foreign protector once and for all. We'll do more on the story later, but if people want to read more about this issue where he discusses um, how this election of Donald Trump offers Australian opportunity to get out of answers and so on, um, you can visit um, the website, all the W's, ipan.org.au. So that's an interesting uh, bit of news they have put out. Okay, um, so I'll get started with the activist calendar. Um, there'll be the Melbourne launch of um, the Retail and Fast Workers Union. Um, it's happening. Fast in, Food Workers Union. Yep. <laughs> and it's happening. Um, we interviewed um, the secretary of that last Friday. Um, this um, launch will be happening tonight at the Lord Newry Hotel, which is at five free. Um, 543 um, Brunswick Street in North Fitzroy, just in walking, probably in walking distance or SRAM from the Free CR studios. Um, so that will, I currently encourage um, people to get and come, uh, get along to that. Um, on Saturday, there will be a rally um, for taxi drivers um, for a fair and just compensation for the, and they'll be at 1 pm at the Parliament House in Spring Street. Um, we already um, announced. Um, the um, tribute to Fidel Castro. Um, just a reminder, that's at 12:30 p.m. at the State Library. Um, if you want uh, on Sunday night, if you would like um, to enjoy some political economy, um, political asylum will be performing at the Brunswick Green um, in Brunswick. Um, just put that into the Google Maps, and that will be starting at around 5:30 to 6 p.m. at the Brunswick Green. Um, there'll be a rally to defend and extend public housing. Um, continuing from the previous rallies by organised by Defend and Extend Public Housing. They'll be at 11.30am at the Parliament Steps of Spring Street. Um, there'll be a debate, um, should West Papua be independent? Um, We've done that. I just did that. Oh, you've already done that. Yep. Right, forget that one. 
Um, okay, so now going on to next Friday, um, Overland National Union of Workers will be launching their Fair Australia launch. Um, basic, um, it's in the context of Overland Magazine and the National Union of Workers um, partnering together to run the Fair Australian Prize, a $20,000 prize for fiction, essay, poetry and art exploring the theme Our Common Future. That'll be at um, 5.30pm at the Tough in Town, 252 Swanson Street in the city. Also happening on that night will be Red Cinema Presents um, Fidel Castro, The Untold Story. Um, it'll be, you know, come in the context of the death of Fidel Castro. Um, this is um, a documentary that covers the 40 years of the Cuban Revolution and contains some little scene footage. Um, it, the screen will be followed by discussion, and that is next Friday, December the 9th, 6.30pm at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street in the city, opposite RMIT. And there'll um, be food available too. Yep, there'll be a vegetarian meal um, from 6pm. Um, we've already talked about the Global Street Party. Um, there'll be a concert um, of Anti-Flag, which is a pretty um, radical political band, you can probably make your book, um, they'll be at 8pm on Saturday the 10th of December at Max Waltz, um, 125 Swanson Street in City. So make your bookings by searching Max Waltz um, and looking for anti-flag. Yeah. Um, there's an, uh, the last uh, and the last announcement um, all, um, will be the teacher's visual, Bring the Refugees Here, which we announced earlier in the show. Um, but there'll be, um, it'll feature speakers and it'll be at 6pm in the city square. Okay, you are back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, we have um, on the line um, Bert from the Cuban Friendship Society and um, we're going to be here talking, having a discussion with him uh, about the legacy of Fidel Castro in light of his death last Saturday. Um, good morning, Bert. G'day, Jacob. Hi. And Lalita here, Burke. Hi. I guess, hi. Hi. Yeah. I guess um, the f- or first question is, um, you know, what, you know, what is the legacy of Fidel Castro, and you know, what has he meant, you know, for, you know, the Cuban Friendship? This is a very probably a big low question. Big story. Big story to go, and we can start from there. <laughs> yeah. Look. Look. Um, I guess it, there's just been so much. I mm. mean, Fidel once said, "A better world is possible." And this is said by someone who has lived dreaming and more than once has had the rare privilege of seeing dreams become realities that were not even dreamt of. Mm. And clearly, um, if you look at the the situation where they've had a blockade for nearly 60 years, Cuba under Fidel and the the rest of the leadership has transformed itself from poverty and underdevelopment and despite numerous hurricanes and, and the US blockade against Cuba, into an example for the rest of the world. I know. I mean, I, what amazes me is he survived 638 attempts by the CIA to kill him. And that says, that's a statement of the century as far as I'm concerned. Because, you know, why would the US want to kill somebody that many times? Well, well clearly, uh, the problem for the US... Um, is that here's an alternative to the capitalist society Mm. just 90 miles off their Florida coast. And when you consider that um, the the huge achievements made, the highest rate of literacy in Latin America, the lowest infant mortality rate than most parts of the United States, more teachers and doctors uh, per capita than any other country, a country that 
doesn't have homeless, homelessness, uh, a successful multiracial society, and we see what's going on in, in the US at the moment, but the Black Lives Matter movement, mm. uh, a leader in organic food production because they were really impacted by the... Um, by the blockade, and I was there in, in 1990 and 1993, and, and they really got into the organic uh, food production, a, a model of participatory democracy. I mean, if you look at the peop number of people that vote in Cuba, it's in the 90% range, where if you look at the US, I'm not sure what the, the last figures were, but it was lucky to be half of the population. Mm, it's less and, than 40. That's right. I think it was something like that. And, yeah. and <clears throat> it's the world's only sustainable economy is, is recognised by the World Wildlife Fund. So the problem for the US and the ruling class over there is that it provides an alternative society, socialist society, to what, um, what they've got. They, they, they push a line that the only form of society that is appropriate is capitalism. And so that's a big factor, and, and they had to try and get rid of uh, Fidel in that process. Mm. I'm going to be a devil's advocate here and ask you something, which I guess a lot of conservative um, reporters ask, and I think we should flush it out here as well. He, he's he's labelled a, a dictator, and you know, and, and the fact that he handed power over to his brother Raúl Castro um, certainly provokes these questions uh, from this conservative mob. Um, how do you explain that? Well, I mean, uh, the, the situation is the the uh, parliamentary system over there is much more democratic than ours. Mm. For example, um, any politician that is elected to their parliament, including both Fidel and Raul, were, they had the power of recall. They could be recalled by their constituents at any time. And, geez, in this country and in Australia... That's if, only, something we'd if, if only we could. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the problem, you know. They get in there and then, they, you know, they, they promise all these sorts of things and then they say, sort of go over to the dark side. <laughs> so, look, I, I, I guess um, I, I guess that's the only way I can answer it. Um, look, it, it's... Uh, and, you know, keep in mind that Raul was, was there right at the beginning. Uh, he, he came over... Uh, he was part of the, um, the, the attack on the Monocata barracks on July 26th. He was there with the, the grandma when they came back and had the successful revolution. Uh, Raul has earned his stripes. He has been the leader of the army for such a long time. He's not someone who's come out of the woodwork. So mm -hmm. clearly, um, clearly that uh, uh, you know we're very confident that there'll be an ongoing uh, continuation of the of the really good. Uh, program that has, has been achieved under Fidel. Yeah. Well, one of the things um, about that is um, it's interesting, um, you know, there were, um, when, at sort of Fidel Castro's funeral, there was like millions and upon millions of Cubans or, you know, you know, crying and you know, expressing their grieving and their sadness at the, at the passing of the leader. And, it, you know, it kind of shows what it, that demonstrates to me is that the majority of the, of the Cuban people had their full confidence in Fidel and, you know, put sort of like, you know, a dent in this sort of myth that Fidel was this dictator because, you know, if he really, you know, if they do, it's in, entrenched in their constitution, um, that they, that they have the right to overthrow their leaders, you know, through armed revolution, whatever you call it. Um, and because, you know, Fidel really didn't have the full confidence of the Cuban people, he could have been overthrown years ago, um, and much sooner. 
Um, and of course, one of the other, um, one other criticism that's also put forward is the fact that, you know, um, Cuba is in theory a one-party state. But of course, you have to question what are the alternative parties. Almost every alternative party that would have cropped up in Cuba would have been a pro-capitalist that would have been backed by the um, United States business. And clearly the people are also, the Cuban people are in full support, have their full confidence in the current party, ruling party that is um, ruling Cuba. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a really good point. Like, if I can illustrate it, in 1990, I was a, a Telstra technician who'd never travelled overseas before, and my union received an invitation from the Cuban Trade Union Congress, the CTC, to attend their May Day march in Havana. And another member, uh, Gary Kennedy, who later became the secretary of the Newcastle Trades and Labor Council, represented the communication workers' union at May Day. Now, millions marched on May Day in Cuba, and we were blown away by the huge crowds in Revolutionary Square. And that would have been the now, first of May, yes? That's, that's correct, <laughs> yes, yes. I just wanted and to make Fidel, that point. <laughs> yeah, Fidel, Fidel marched with the CTC leader, Pedro Ross, um, the, the then CTC leader, at the head of the march. It, it's, it was not... Um, it, it was a trade union thing, as you know, the history of May Day is the struggle for the eight-hour day. Mm, that's right. And we, and we saw how Fidel was able to march freely at the head of the people. There was no guards around him. Mm. The people loved him. And, you know, contra, contrast this to, the, say, the U.S. president. Mm. Um, I think he does a walk down Pennsylvania uh, promenade or something like that. Yes. And, and he's surrounded by guards and, uh, you know, all around CIA him. CIA and a lot. You know, and, I mean, the situation is... Uh, we could see that if, if people didn't like him, they could have ripped him apart before the guards got to him. Exactly. But, they, you know, people stopped. And then he came up on the dais where we were. And and as the, the march continued, because, as I said, there were millions marching, they, they'd sort of... It started to, to, to block up as it got in front of him because they're all waving to him. And, and you're absolutely correct in the, uh, you know, the footage we've seen in the last couple of days of... Uh, people crying and, and, you know, out in large numbers. I mean, I expect the CIA and, and ASIO and all these folk to be saying, you know, oh, look, they're there at gunpoint and they, yeah. they don't really want to be there and of all that. <laughs> but, but there's no question about it. When you look at the history of, of Cuba, where it was dominated by the United States, a very poor country, people couldn't read and write, um, the mafia had a massive impact in there. Fidel and the, and the Communist Party changed all that. I think one of the key things uh, about um, Cuba is the health system, and that is so impressive. It has one of the best health systems in the world. And I listened to Che Guevara's daughter who came out here, who's a pediatrician, and she was so impressive at the rate of immunization and and the amount of... um, health improvements in the society. In fact, they even have a um, a vaccination against lung cancer. And the world refuses to acknowledge it because of this imperialist view of Cuba as offering an alternative to capitalism, as you say. It is just appalling what they will do to suppress anything that benefits humanity for the sake of profits. Ugh, it drives me insane. <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, um, it's interesting you raised um, Aida Guevara because she's a paediatrician herself. That's right. She's a children's doctor. Yep. You, you, you would know. Yep. But, but Cuba, Cuba um, 
uh, has free health care for everyone. That's right. And the highest doctor-patient ratio in the world. Yep. Uh, its medical brigades have sent oh, around about 40,000 doctors to work in 81 developing countries. Mm. Uh, you know, they do some wonderful stuff and there's been great breakthroughs uh, on a whole range of issues. You're quite right about the the vaccine for uh, various, not only uh, the ones you mentioned, but all, all sorts of things. Yes. So, you know, they've done it uh, off their own bat. And um, and if you look at the cost of Cuban healthcare versus the US healthcare, mm. um, the US healthcare costs per capita, that's why the only way you can compare them, five times as much as what the um, Cuban healthcare costs. Mm. And the reason is it's privately operated for profit. That's yes. the big difference. Yes. Yeah. I think one thing I would like to, you know, discuss, you know, in relation to the legacy of um, Fidel Castro is, you know, the examples of international solidarity he has, um, you know, shown to oppressed groups, you know, from, um, from, you know, the support that he gave um, to um, against um, to Africans against um, resisting against apartheid, um, you know, to the solidarity. Um, and there was even a recent example. I think there was a big, you know, remember when the, the Ebola outbreak and um, Cuba had sent in right. doctors into support. And, and there's also, they, they give um, solidarity, you know, to the most oppressed people in Australia with, you know, the Indigenous Literacy Project that Cuban um, teachers are involved in. Um, so, yeah, what, um, what, let's discuss more about the kind of examples of international solidarity that Fidel Castro has shown over the years. Yes, look, he, he certainly armed the Cuban people with, with um, internationalism, solidarity, unity and an iron will to, to defend their independence and sovereignty. So when Africa called Cuba, uh, they answered and helped defeat the, the scourge of apartheid. And one of the first places that Nelson Mandela visited yes. when he got out <laughs> was, was, was Cuba. That's right. Uh, and uh, when he was having his inauguration of, um, as president of South Africa, the U.S. put enormous pressure on, on uh, Nelson Mandela and the South African government to, to not invite Fidel. And, um, and anyway, the, the South African government, and they said, look, we're not, we, we won't come if Fidel comes. And, um, and so the South African says, well, you're not coming then. Don't come, OK? <laughs> And it's because of that wonderful, um, you know, support that the, 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 the Cubans had given in Angola and other places in South Africa. And, and interesting, Jacob, you mentioned the situation with literacy. They, they've been all around the world helping people to learn and read and write. And you're, you're aware of what's happening here in Australia, particularly in rural New South Wales, places like Wilcannia where they're teaching our Indigenous brothers and sisters how to read and write. They've got right. a particular system. I mean, and, and it's working. Even both Conservative and Labor governments have supported it because it does work. Mm. So it's this wonderful international attitude that the Cubans and the, uh, the leadership of the, of the people in, in Cuba has to support people all around the world. Wherever there's a breakout of a, a Ebola or been an earthquake in... Uh, you know, they, they're there. They're helping with doctors and so forth. It's, it's, uh, it's a tremendous example. I just have to say that um, in relation to the Cubans in Australia, it's an absolute disgrace that Australia had to, you know, resort to having Cubans here. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But the, the fact remains that the Cubans have an enormous impact on the, on the um, Aboriginal community here. 
um, I went to a international indigenous conference two weeks ago, and Cuba was mentioned at that conference by the leaders of, um, I think it was Northern Territory, um, okay. about the, the literacy program you just mentioned. And I was saying, wow, you know, this is, this is just so impressive. The, a tiny country with such a small number of people can do so much because of the commitment to people. And that's a feature of Fidel Castro. He was completely committed to the people, completely committed to making sure that capitalism doesn't destroy Cuba. He never betrayed the people. That's a feature of this man. And it just, it's, it's mind-blowing to think that he was so committed to the people compared to to majority of the other countries in the world where the commitment is to profits. Absolutely. You know, what a wonderful inspiration for the rest of us, you know. Absolutely. It's, um, yeah. it, it just, I mean, I, I can't stop looking at, at videos and, and, and reading things about him because, you know, if there was a magnificent human being, he was absolutely one. He, I think, surpasses everybody, including Gandhi and the Pope and all these, these things, even Mother Teresa, they put up on a pedestal. Nothing is, is, could match. Well. Well, personally, on that on that level, on note, <laughs> I don't have a very high opinion of my Mother Teresa. So I know, but I don't either. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just the way the bourgeois press promotes them. That, that's what I'm comparing it to, you know. Yeah. No, and, no, you're quite right. Yeah. You know, it's, and, and all they can do is put him down. You know, bring all the negative things into it. Oh, he didn't support gay rights. Well, how do you know? Did you go there? Did you have a look at it? Did you actually talk no. to people? Well, there? well, the interesting um, thing is um, on that topic. Um, you know. Um, Cuba, we had to admit, it was admittedly, back in that time, very homophobic and had quite True, repressive... Right. Um, but Fidel, you know, that's Fidel Castro has apologised um, for, you know, I think he apologised back in the 80s or 90s and for those heart terrible policies towards LGBT. And since then, mm. you know, Cuba has made amazing gains in LGBT rights. In fact, they had a massive um, march in support of LGBT mm. um, gay rights. And one of the main kind of sort of organisers behind that is for, um, Raul Castro's daughter, who sort of leads... That's right. Um, sort of, do you have any more sort of information on that? No, look, look, all I can say is you're absolutely right. In the early parts of the revolution, there were difficulties there. And um, quite frankly, in that part of the Americas, it was a very macho society. And they had to work very, very patiently to bring people around and explain the situation. And it's, it's moved from that earlier situation to a much better situation. But um, look, it, it took time, but it was only the, all that tremendous patient work to, to change that situation and ensure that they did get the important recognition that they needed. Um, what's um, also interesting developing in light of um, Fidel Castro's death is um, the support that um, Black Lives Matter has given to Fidel Castro, you know, and, and his legacy. Um, in fact, they've um, recently um, Black Lives Matter has involved to, you know, to taking up um, to not just take up the issues of police brutality, but actually the whole um, question of economic justice. And um, they see Fidel Castro as, you know continue um, pledging to support that kind of legacy of Fidel Castro of dedication to economic ju justice and equality for, you know, all oppressed groups. And I think that's a, a very amazing kind of expression. So, when, you know, when you see what it, what it tells me is, you know, the, the people who are on the right side of history all stand by Castro and those who aren't are the ones who are smearing his name and claiming that, you know, he's a dictator, he, you know, oppresses his people and so on. 
Yeah, that's right. I, I, um, I think that's right. I think that the, the attacks that have happened, and they've come from some really odd quarters, I must say, but, um, you know, the, the, there's no question that the, the working class people and the oppressed people have a great love for Fidel, and, and that will shine through. And, and as, as he explained when he was first captured um, after the, uh, after the um, July 26th, uh, where they were, were beaten by Batista's forces, and he and he stood up in court uh, and gave an yes. heroic speech, yes. and and said, "History will absolve me." Yes. You know, and, and his enormous confidence in the struggling masses and their ultimate victory was expressed in that speech, and it inflamed young fighters for justice in Cuba and all over the world, including the uh, the Black Lives Matters. Um, movement in the United States and the Afro-Americans people there uh, to, to, to take up and continue the struggle and, and you can't you can't snuff that out with the death of Fidel Castro. Mm. It will continue. Mm. Yeah, I just want to say one last thing. Uh, Fidel Castro said that um, you know Cuba will not be recognised or wouldn't establish friendly relationships with the US until we have a Latin American pope and a black president, and that's what happened. He also said that I will not die till the U.S. is destroyed, and we have Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he never got, got it all, all there. But look, I, the only thing I would say, um, and uh, is that I think that capitalism's in its death throes. It's, it's taken yes. a while to get there, but they're in more trouble than Ned Kelly. You know, I mean, that's their right. economy's in strife, and. Uh, yeah, and by the way, Ned was a hero, but I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, but um, look, they are in strife, and and certainly capitalism hasn't gone away. Must must acknowledge that. Yes. So, uh, but but everything he said about the United States is absolutely correct. Yeah. Such an astute man, and, I, and thank quick, you. Quick last thing before um, we have a minute to go. Um, is the, Cu- the Cuban Friendship um, Society, from my understanding, are they organising an event on December the sixteenth? Is that correct? December the 16th, no. Um, no, we've got something on next Monday night. Um, there, there's a thing on at the Unitarian Church um, at 7, 7 o'clock. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, bit of a bit of a function there. Yeah. And, um, and that's, we're, we're going to have uh, Marie Delore, our president's going to uh, do, some, um, uh, do some references to Fidel. We're showing a film, not, not, a, not a Cuban film, but uh, that's at 110 Gray Street, East Melbourne. We better go. Yep. Um, yeah, so yeah. You're, you're most welcome to attend, you know. Yep. Okay, thank thanks you for so that. Much. Um, we've got to go now. And um, thanks, listeners, for listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. And stay tuned for Beyond Zero Emissions.